Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 25. Continuing with our uh, our group trades, um, tonight we're going to lay back with uh, the glass blowers. Though some glass was made at Jamestown as early as 1609, the history of American glass making in the 17th century is one of many trials and failures. There may be one exception, though. Jan Smead's glass house in New Amsterdam in 1654. He was able to bring artisans and supplies from Holland to have, in fact, a transplanted Dutch glassworks. The English colonists had no such chance. Mother England didn't mind her overseas children making glass. It was a minor industry at home but she did mind their getting any fire clay to make in it, and they found none good enough here. The Americans also had trouble getting the skilled workers that as were important as the clay was, and they had to try out native raw materials to the disgust of the imported glass blowers who were used to materials that would always behave as they expected. So, let's fast forward to the colonies. Caspar Wister, who came from Bavaria, gave the American glass industry its real start in 1737 in the small hamlet of Alloystown, New Jersey. Caspar had grown rich making famous Philadelphia brass buttons noted for their strength and warranted for seven years. Promoted by Benjamin Franklin, he, bought, he brought in expert glassblowers from Rotterdam and, under their direction, set up a large-scale works on a 2,000-acre tract that provided plenty of fuel. Almost all American glass was made by immigrant workers before 1800. They were secretive, and <clears throat> they were had, had a hard time learning because of their language barrier. Um, any of the locals had a hard time learning any of the trade for them, so it kept them in very high demand until about 1800. For 40 years in Alloway's town, Casper Wister's factory made most kinds of glass and experimented successfully with the new processes that began to come available. The first American flint glass was probably made there, and the first articles with two colors of glass fused together certainly were. But Casper Wister, his most profitable product was window glass, flat, plain glass. It was scarce and was expensive to import from England and other European countries. The colonies weren't too far from the medieval time when a householder going on for a long journey took the valuable panes right out of the windows when he sold or left his house, and he stored them for the next house. A colonial glassmaker's first problem was pots to melt the glass in. Every glassworks had its own pottery, which it set up and got into operation before even starting to build the glass furnace itself. The fire clay had to come from Europe. The potters pulverized it and 
<clears throat> and piled it up in open pits for a year just to ripen. But when it was ripe, whatever that meant to them, they tempered it by adding a fifth of its weight of ground-up baked clay, old pots or even old bricks ground up. They wet this mix down and bugged it by stomping it around with their bare feet. Then they left it another six months under cover this time to ripen just a bit further. It took three weeks to shape a pot three feet in diameter and equally high, which would hold 1,300 pounds of molten glass. No potter's wheel would do for this. The potters hammered the flat base on a slab and cut it into a circular mud pie. They built up the sides by slowly adding rolls and rolls of clay, which they compacted very carefully. Very early glass pots, probably those used in Jamestown, had dome tops and small arched openings where the dome met the walls. It's likely that Caspar Wister used open-top pots such as were common in the day in Europe at this time. It isn't surprising, though, that he made no glass until 1740. After a pot was shaped, it had to dry for a full year before it could be fired. In use, it would last only two or three months before it broke from all the excessive heat. Wister burned wood in his, his furnaces. In fact, coupled with his Dutch advisors, makes it probable that he followed the European wood-burning dome shape for them rather than the conical English ones which burn coal. And it was said that Wister's fires could be seen eight miles away glowing in the night. England, with its island almost stripped its trees to build ships and to smelt iron, forbade its glassmakers to burn wood. They had to burn coal. Archaeologists are now excavating um, a few of the glassworks in Frederick County, Maryland. One of the things they hope to learn is the kind of furnace an early American glassmaker used. But it's known that glass furnaces were circular. They were built of brick and lined with blocks of the same fire clay that served for the pots. The heat of the furnace baked them in place. Fire, burning underneath, roared up through the furnace and the smoke escaped from an opening at the top. Small holes around the walls gave the glass blowers access to the pots of glass inside. Pots were moved hot from the pottery kiln and placed in the hot glass furnace, a section of whose wall had to be taken down to admit each one every time and then build up again. Moving a hot pot was a Herculean job. Six, it took six men <clears throat> who must have been almost broiled during the encounter. The frit that would melt into glass went into the pot through the hole of the furnace wall. As it, as it was cooked, at heats up to 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit, furnace men stirred it and skimmed off the salty sandalier that, that rose to the top of the surface. Common bottle glass was done after 16 years. The flint glass might have taken up to 72. Glass is the result of the seemingly 
<clears throat> miraculously metamorphous of sand or ground flint or both, mixed with some kind of alkali or even a metallic oxide, like litharge, which was red lead, plus an alkali. This mixture is frit. None of, the tra- <clears throat> none of it is transparent at the start. The quality of the materials and of the proportions in which they were used to control such characteristics as hardness, clarity, and color. Frit, for the cheapest colonial green bottle glass, was sea and sand mixed with pulverized slag from an iron furnace or alkaline waste that soap boilers had skimmed from their cauldrons. Window glass had white salt or potash to its alkali, and flint glass, now merely a term used for good glass, had pearl ash or actual powdered flint in it as well, as litharge, sand. So it made the best hollow glassware. Glass took color from metallic oxides added to it. Silver plus aluminum made yellow. Copper or gold made red. Chrome or iron made green. Cobalt made blue. Up to the second quarter of the 19th century, hand blowing was involved in the making of all glass in this country. The blower gathered a a parson or a, a glob of hot glass from the pot by dipping the tip of the six-foot blowing iron or tube into the mass. He then blew his breath into the second wood-covered coal end of the tube and inflated the parson into a bubble, small or large, depending on what would be made of it. Blowing glass took a lot more lung power than blowing up soap bubbles. Hot glass is heavy and viscous. The repeated effort was and had for the blower's heart all the hot air that he could, he could muster up. Inevitably, it had to be inhaled first, but this was very bad in the end for his lungs. A glass blower knew he risked his health and worked no more than nine months of the year, or even only six to try to preserve his lung power. The whole job called for many hands. The actual blowing was done by a servitor who needed several assistants, and when he and they had done their work, they turned their parison over to the other workers for completion. The servitor could shape his bubble, so before he blew, blew it in at all, he, e- <coughs> he evened up the parison by rolling it on a polished iron table called a marver. He could lengthen the blown bubble by swinging his blowing iron back and forth. He could give the bubble a gourd neck on either end by rolling it against a horizontal iron bar, reheating it in the furnace whenever the glass began to cool down just a bit. Say the article was to be a common blown bottle with a fat body or often slightly crooked and over a long, narrow neck. The servitor shaped his parison accordingly, with the neck end attached to his blowing iron. An apprentice gathered a button of hot glass on the end of a putney or a pontal, an iron rod some four feet long, and placed the glazed tip against the center of a bell-shaped end of the bottle. It stuck. Then, 
the wetter off, dip the iron blade into water, cold water that is, and cut the neck free of the blowing iron. The apprentice turned his putney straight up, and with the glowing hot bottle standing on top of the rod, bore it off to the gaffer who would finish shaping it altogether. The gaffer worked in a backless armchair. Its level arms protected him with sheet iron, and many tools hung on pegs driven into the sides of that chair. He rested the putney across the arms with a parison outside the right-hand one. By rolling the putney, he could rotate his work at will. The chair stood close to a glory hole in the furnace, where the craftsman or the assistant could reheat the glass if it started to harden. The gaffer could handle far more complicated articles than bottles, footed goblets or wine glasses, for instance, shaping their stems with wooden ponsels and trimming the tops of their bowls with shears. But let's stick to the bottle here. While its bottom was still soft, the gaffer punched the putney inward, helped by a wooden tool to make the depression in the bottle on the bottom of the bottle that would allow the vessel to stand straight up. Then he reheated the neck and gathered a little glass to apply a rough band around its top. Necking shears plunged into the neck and turned against the new band, shaped it to its neatness and at the same time made it taper on the inside of the neck to receive a cork. A boy carried the new bottle to the leer where he snapped the putney off its bottom. The putney mark shows on the bottoms of blown bottles. A leer man stood the bottle on the hot iron tray in the leer. If glass is allowed to cool too quickly, it becomes so brittle that it may shatter just at a touch. For strength, it must be annealed by cooling very gradually. That was and is the purpose of the leer. The colonial leer was a long, arched tunnel of brick with small iron doors at intervals along both sides. Heat, sometimes taken from the top of the glass furnace, entered only one end. That was the end where the bottle found its tray. The learmen used hooked rods to reach through the doors to move the trays down the tunnel by degrees, away from the heat until he finally took them cool from the far end. Bottles, tumblers, vases, pitchers, and jars could also be, lo- be blown inside heated molds, which shaped them and impressed fluting and other ornamentation on them. Woodcarvers made the models of mahogany, and the iron or brass molds were cast from these in two or three parts, which were hinged together. The blower stood on a platform above the mold, inserted his parison into the opening of the mold's top before he started blowing. Assistants opened the mold to release the article and took it from the blower on a putney as before. The seams between the mold and sections showed on the product. Machines now blow milk bottles in just about the same way. The colonials also made use of one-piece molds from which the inflated parison would not draw. 
the blower got it out of out of the uh, hideous risk by sucking it into a smaller object and blowing it up again after it was on the outside. He could then blow it larger and that it <clears throat> blow it larger than it had been inside the mold if he wished. Any pattern on it would enlarge proportionally, just as he printed the design does on a toy balloon. All early colonial windows were glazed with crown glass, and and it remained the best long after cheaper ways of making flat glass were even introduced. Except at one small point, the surfaces of the crown glass touched nothing until it was totally hardened. Hence, it kept its brilliant luster. If someone touches a glass pre-hardening, it will mat it down. The blower made it complete. He needed no chair work. He blew a large sphere and had it transferred to a putney. The wetter off left a two and a half inch hole where he cut the parison off the blowing iron. The blower took the putney to a large glory hole where he rested it on an iron fork and rotated it to spin and very rapidly in the ongoing heat. As he spun, he stood partially behind the small screen to avoid slow cremation. As he spun, though, the hole in the glass grew larger and the bubble widened and flattened. The spinner increased the speed, and quite suddenly, with a loud, fluttering pop, the hole flew wide open, and the artisan found himself spinning a glass disc almost four feet across. It was a quite uniform thickness, except for a rough core in the center, which was the attachment of the Putney. This was called the bullseye, cut out and sold, as a cheaper of all window glass. It would emit some light, but would not permit recognizable individual or, or visual, visualization uh, passing behind it. It was now expensively copied to give atmosphere to quaint restaurants. The blower withdrew his disc slowly from the fire, maintaining the spin to keep it in shape until it all had cooled enough to support its own weight. Like other glass, it had to be annealed in a leer. It was cut into panes and then it, <coughs> when it was cold. The largest possible pane was about 15 by 24 inches, and only two of that size could be cut from that size disc. But 14 or even 16 8 by 10 panes, exclusive of the bullseye, came out from a four-foot disc. Worcester, he advertised special large panes, though. Broad glass, much easier to make than crown glass, and much duller and hence much cheaper, seems to have appeared somewhere around 1800. It was invented in Germany and was also made in France. Making it, the blower formed his parison to something like the shape of a straight-sided egg. And they're quite rare, but, the, but it did happen and some do exist today. No putney was welded to it, though. When the wetter off cut it loose, he also sliced it the long way clear around. An expert flattened the two halves into two fan shapes on an iron table, presumably a heated one. 
It was the iron that dulled the surface of the broad glass. In France, the best of it was hand-polished, and that may have been done here also eventually, probably in the 1820s. Cylinder glass was identical, except that the blower swung as parison to a large cylinder shape, from which the wetter off cut both ends before he sliced it lengthwise, on one side only, so that the whole gather flattened into a single rectangular sheet. The French made plate glass in the 18th century, pouring the melt onto a large copper slab and then rolling it flat. It was annealed on the slab over a period of 10 days and then arduously ground smooth on both sides and then polished. The first plate glass made in this country was poured in Brooklyn around 1856 as we know it. Edward Hazen described the process 20 years earlier that without mentioning where it was even made. He may have been reading Diderot, who describes it very fully back into the 18th century. The early 1800s brought in the heyday of press glass. The Boston and Sandwich Glass Company opened at Sandwich on the Cape Cod uh, Peninsula and introduced it, and its shape quickly spread to other glass-making centers. As it happened in, <coughs> in other crafts, the enthusiasm generated by the new idea led the originators to high-grade performance. No other plant made pressed glass that equaled the sandwich-type pressed glass. A workman named Robinson built the first glass pressing machine in 1827. There's no evidence that he invented it, but one suspects that Deming Jarvis, who ran the sandwich plant, may have guided his work that way. Jarvis was a remarkable man. He encouraged everyone in the place to experiment heavily. His men worked a 40-hour week in the area when such hours seemed sheer insanity. They made good wages and were kept on the payroll through the frequent periods of financial depression. Robinson's pressing machine wasn't automatic, though. An assistant ladled glass into the mold. No blowing was required or involved. The operator used a foot lever to bring the plunger down on the glass and squeeze it into shape. He then opened the mold with the handles to release the new piece, which another assistant carried to the leer. Except for the annealing, no finishing was done beyond that. Molds were cast from carved wooden models as those of blowing were. Jarvis employed the best carvers and mold makers he could get his hands on. It was said that they were the best possibly in the world. As a result, sandwich glass sold originally for ordinary household use and even given away as premiums with shop purchases is now avidly collected as some of the finest glass ever produced in the colonies. Cup plates, but one of the many items the factory made, are particularly sought after, though nobody now puts them in their original use. In their day, even the most elegant lady poured tea and coffee from her cup into her saucer to cool and then, with daintily extended pinky, drank from it with the saucer in hand. She rested her cup on a glass, on a glass cup plate to save her tablecloth. Sandwich cup plates 
are three or four inches in diameter, so they're very small. They have fancy borders that catch light attractively. All of the patterns is on the underside, though. The central design is often quite patriotic, like the eagle on, the, uh, on many plates that we see in, um, in museums today. So, and you'll even find, uh, you know, the, uh, the engravings of uh, George Washington and Benjamin Franklin on some of these. So the original retail price for all of them was only five cents back in the day. The prices of good blown glass onto, uh, out of sandwich, um, but back in sandwich, it's rare. This blown glass is rare, of course. As we said, they weren't blowing, they were pressing. And much of it is very handsome, the blown glass. I mean, there were a few of the workers that after hours that buy blown glass, and that's all that they can find of, of that. Back to uh, South Jersey glass of Casper uh, Wister and his successors had a pleasant squatness of sorts. The gaffers decorated some of it by wrapping raised glass cords around it. Some they also double dipped like the pitchers. Near Frederick, Frederick Maryland from uh, roughly 1875, John Frederick operated a notable factory making all kind of glassware, window glass from the lowest to the finest sorts, white and green bottles, wine and other drinking glasses, and also optical glasses and looking glasses finished totally complete, even with wood borders. And back in this factory, they really tried on presentation work. They made the finest of all of the early American glass there. The value of such pieces as the Maryland Historical Society's footed goblet runs into starting in the thousands, even today in 2022. America's most famous glassmaker and the one, uh, one of her best for general high quality was Henrik Wilhelm, the Baron von Stiegel. He titled himself this. Only Lord Timothy Dexter of Newburyport, who filled his front, <coughs> his front yard with painted wooden statuary, approached Stiegel in the prestigious grandeur, and Stiegel lacked any trace of Lord Timothy's saving sense of humor. The Baron built a mansion in Mannheim, Pennsylvania, um, and, you know, which is some, some miles away, a strange pyramidal guesthouse with a cannon on top to salute his rivals. He traveled in a coach drawn by six white horses, attended by liveried liveried, uh, servants and outriders, and he paid for the uniformed band that greeted him with music when he reached Mannheim. Eight years of these expenses, plus some too rapid business expansion, did for him in 1774. It did him in. And he was old at, at 48. He taught school for a few years, and then he died poor. So all that success he had. Steigl's own trade was an iron founder, but he had managed to marry his boss's daughter, but he was also an inventor, and he encouraged the German artisans in his glass factory to do remarkable work in engraved and enameled glass. So that uh, finishes up on early glass, and um, again, we're in a a segment of artisans all working together. Um, So please uh, hit the, uh, when you're if you want to hear more about the historic preservations, please look us up on Instagram. Um, 
we lead into that those minute segments of videos. I have videos um, in museums on site uh, in my conservation horological workshop, the furniture restoration workshop, the uh, architectural workshop, and they lead to uh, you know five, ten, or fifteen minute videos on IGTV. And also look us up, the historic preservationist as Instagram as all one word lowercase. Um, you'll find our own YouTube channel on Look Us Up, and uh, you know, please hit the subscribe button if you like what you're seeing. And you know, here at the Historic Preservation, uh, me, Greg Perry, I mean, we're trying to give you uh, free information. Uh, I don't get paid for this. I don't monetize this. There's too many people out there on YouTube. The only reason why they they try to do whatever they do, some in some far-flung relation to woodworking or furniture restoration, is they're promoting themselves. They're promoting a glue, a tool, and they're doing this to make money. There's none of that. I am a purveyor of history. I want to teach everyone about our early American colonial history, whether it's clocks or furniture, decorative arts in general, or historic architecture. And I'm putting that, this is my own free time. I'm trying to teach everyone because I feel that we're in a time, um, possibly in the last 20, 25 years, which we're lacking this, this impetus, this appreciation. We've seen antiquity um, plummet 150 to 200 percent in value, true American antiquity and British antiquity for that matter. And it's, it's really unacceptable. We don't know our uh, past, and so how do we know our future? So. Uh, um, so what free time I have, I try to put forth, for instance, this podcast, these podcasts. I think we may have over 600 of them um, in addition to the IGTV and the, the YouTube videos. So, uh, so, you know, please drop us a line and let us know what you like. So uh, Greg Perry, the History of Preservation, signing out. Thanks, everyone, for listening.